book of Luke, chapter 17. I want to read this morning verses 1 through verse 10. Please follow along as, as I read verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, When he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Well, that last phrase there, I want to make the heading of my sermon, preaching to you on this topic, we have only done what was our duty. Sounds exciting? Let's pray and let's ask God for His help. God, we do ask that You would speak to us now as we study Your Word, as we look at this text with a couple different teachings that are strung together to make a point, we do ask that you would plant your word deep in us, that you would fashion us according to your likeness, that you would grow us, that you would develop us this morning, that we would love our brothers and sisters well as a result of this passage, as a result of seeing our duty to you and to you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Queen Victoria was a kid, she did not know that she was the heir to the throne of England. She struggled in school and her teachers were frustrated, always trying to motivate her in her studies. And at one point, they decided, let's tell her that she's going to be the queen. And so they sat her down and they told her, Victoria, you are going to be the Queen of England one day. Her response was, then I shall be good. And from that point on, there was no problem motivating her in her studies. When she discovered who she was and where she's going, it gave her a greater sense of duty in all of the little things of life. Now, I think the same applies to us 
the more, more you know who you are and where you're going, the greater sense of duty you are going to have in all of the little things of life. In some ways, as we've been studying the, this book of Luke, we've been looking at the little things of life. Jesus has been telling us, be faithful in the little things. Little things such as money. So the last couple weeks, we looked at his teaching on stewardship and what it looks like to handle money. Now he turns, and we're talking about loving the weaker person among us, loving our brothers and sisters, just our daily life with each other. And what he's saying is, is be faithful with all of the little things of life. And I think if we understand who we actually are, I think it'll motivate us in these ways. Now, we uh, have a problem that we have to set out with before we get into this. And that is, that is simply this. In the fallen condition of humanity, humans don't care about sin. What I mean by that is uh, someone else might be sinning that they love. They might see them sin, or they might even be leading them into sin, and they, they don't care. And then there's a second problem to that, and, and that is this. When they are sinned against, they cannot forgive. Meaning there is actually a kind of sin that fallen humanity cares about, and that is when, when I am sinned against. Why is this? Well, it's, it's a result of the fall. What happened in the fall? Sin entered into the world, right? Well, how did sin enter into the world? It was through Adam taking this fruit and saying, uh, my duty is no longer to God. I am obligated no longer to God. My duty is to my desires, my wants, my lusts. And so in the fall, what happens is Adam and Eve throw off their obligation to God and they become only obligated to self. That's at the very core of sin. At the very core of sin, we are obligated to self. Our duty is to our desire. Our duty is to our will. Our duty is to our own wants. And so what does that mean? How, do, how, how does that impact us as it relates to one another? Well, on one hand, what it means is if you're sinning or maybe even if I'm leading you into sin, I really don't care because it actually might be part of my own allegiance to desire, lust, the flesh, my own will. It has left us with the first problem of we don't care about sin in others. And we freely might even lead somebody into sin. And it has produced this second problem, and that is this. If my duty is to myself, if I am the one sinned against, now I 
am upset, care about sin, and cannot forgive. Because you have sinned against, against me. As Luke is turning from money, he's turning now to this, this topic of self, and he's bringing together, I believe, a number of Jesus' teaching, teachings to make a point. And that point is simply this, that we are called, it is our duty to love, not just in general, but in spe- specifically in this text, to love the weaker brother or sister. We're called to love the one who we might have the opportunity to lead into sin. We're called to love the one who has sinned against us. And that looks like two things. As we get into the text, let's look at it. First, as we look at sort of this, what I'm going to call the essence of love, this is uh, how we're going to define love for one another this morning. First, we see a negative and we see a positive. The negative is this, never be a means of temptation. And the positive is this, always be a means of grace. This is what it looks like to love one another. It's not uncommon for my wife to pull up in our minivan with uh, a, a back uh, minivan rear f- filled with <laughs> gro- <laughs> groceries. I had to kind of qualify that. And I get a text message, hey, could you come out here and help me bring these, bring these groceries in? And so I walk out and I'm talking to her about this or that. And she's got six bags, grocery bags in each hand. And she looks at me and says something to the effect of, if you love me, you will take these grocery bags from me. I might even be sitting there talking to her about plans that I have for us. We're going to maybe go out to dinner or uh, we're gonna, I'm going to do something nice for her. But she doesn't feel loved if I'm standing there watching her carry these 12 bags of groceries crushed under this burden and I don't offer to lift a finger. Simple illustration, and that is this. When someone is being crushed under a burden, what does love look like? Like you could say, oh, I I am loving them in this way or that way. I've got big plans for them. But if we don't help to alleviate that, that immediate burden, it doesn't really feel like love, does it? We're looking today at the burden, not of groceries. Amen for that. That's not a burden. We're looking this morning at the, at, at the burden of sin. This is the burden that we are crushed underneath. Meaning, if we really want to figure out what it looks like to have good relationships with each other, we have to figure out this problem of sin. Like, we could sit around a campfire all day and sing 12 different versions of Kumbaya and say nice things to each other and have nice little gatherings where we get together and feel fuzzy and warm and cozy. But if we don't deal with this issue of sin, then we're not actually going to love each other because it's crushing. It's a burden. 
And so the essence of love, track with me, is to deal with this issue of sin. And so that's where we see these, these two points, this negative and this positive. First, Jesus says in the negative, never be a means of temptation. Means being sort of like the hose is a means for the water. Uh, a means is, is a channel through which something flows. Jesus makes it clear temptations are inevitable in verse 1. They're going to come. They are sure to come, he says, but it is never okay to be the person through which they come. We don't want to be a means of temptation. Look at verse 2. He says, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A millstone was a tool that they used to grind wheat. The idea, the picture of a millstone being tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea, that is a gruesome, horrifying picture of how to die. And what Jesus is saying is, is, is that for the believer, that would be more appealing than being the means of temptation in someone's life. It would be more appealing to have a terrible death than to lead a brother or sister to sin against our God. That's his point. Sin here is most likely the sin of apostasy. I think that's the direct application. Uh, the reason for that is just simply because of the broader teaching uh, of, of the text. We're, we're talking about the Pharisees. We're talking about the religious leaders. That's been the vein of communication for Luke. And I think what he's saying is, is, is those of you who are spiritual leaders or disciples, Christians, as you are, become spiritual leaders in other people's lives, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck thrown into the sea than to lead somebody away from the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the truth of Scriptures. The Pharisees were people who would twist the Bible. The Pharisees were people who, were, were people who would twist the ethics and the morals of Scriptures to fit their own selfish, fleshly desires. Now, he addresses this not to the Pharisees in particular, but to the disciples, which means that we can become this even unintentionally. We could unintentionally, through our own hypocrisy, through our own theological wandering, questioning everything, we can actually be a means through which we would lead somebody into apostasy. In church, we've got to walk humbly through this text. Don't let that be me. I'll tell you what, I wasn't planned, this isn't in here, it's just literally popping, on my, popping in my head, this illustration, but about, I don't know, 10, probably 15, 12 years ago, something like that. A number of years ago, um, I was in a totally different place uh, than I am now 
theologically, and I was wandering all over the place. And I read a book that I didn't really agree with 100%, but I thought it was interesting, and I recommended it to a friend. And the enemy used that book to lead him away from the faith and to embrace atheism. And that was the beginning of a radical shift that, that my life took. God, don't let me, through my own stupidity, be a means to lead someone to apostasy, to, to walk away from the truth of Scripture, to pervert God's Word. I, I think secondarily, this also applies to morality. I think the main application is apostasy, but that doesn't mean, oh, well, we can lead people into moral sins, and that's okay. I, that also applies. Issues of morality, like boyfriends, don't lead your girlfriends towards sexual immorality. It would be better to have a millstone thrown around your neck into the sea. Don't, don't lead the weaker brothers in the church into an addiction with drugs or alcohol. Don't, don't lead don't lead friends to steal for you or to lie on your behalf to make your life a little easier. Like all of these things apply. I remember uh, when I was about 20 years old or so, I preached this text. And, uh, and I read Little Ones, and I thought, oh, this is about child abuse. Now, Little Ones, I don't think, actually applies directly to children in the text. Little Ones, is a, the application of that is Christians, disciples. We can go through the Scriptures. We don't have time to do it now, but children, Little Ones, is often or always a reference for those who follow Jesus Christ, His disciples. And as a matter of fact, He says, these little ones. He's talking to the disciples. However, in my uh, sort of crude reading of the text, I just read little ones, and I thought, oh, that must mean children. And I applied that to child. So my sermon was on child abuse. And then over the years, I've been refined in my theology, and I say, oh, that's not about child abuse. But it actually is as well, Right? <laughs> Like, you can actually make that application. I, I, within the last year, I heard of a pastor in, in, in Dundalk who was having sex with a 16-year-old in his church, luring her into his office. What could cause this kind of debauchery in an individual. I don't know how many times I've been sitting counseling somebody who is struggling and wrestling in their faith, wrestling to, want to believe whether or not God is good. And as we're talking and as I'm counseling them, it comes out that they were abused. Sometimes by a religious leader. A Sunday school teacher who every single week was having sex with this young boy. He's wandering away from the faith. 
He can't be part of a church. How can I believe in this God? It applies to every aspect of stewardship with relationships. In the same way that we were talking about stewardship with money, we're talking about stewardship with our relationships this week. We do not want to be the means through which temptation comes in an individual's life. We don't want to be the reason people are questioning whether or not God is good. And what's the problem? Why why would people lead each other in this way? The issue is sin. Sin. Sin is the human problem. We can talk all day about how to have better relationships in the church, but our problem is sin. Well, that's the negative. And then he puts it in a positive way. This is something you should do. First, he says, watch yourself. That's his application. Pay attention, verse 3, to yourselves. Like, have an awareness of what you're doing. Moving on, pay attention to yourselves. Here he continues with this sort of positive application. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Let's just pause right there. So, So the opposite of leading somebody into sin would be to rebuke somebody if you see them in sin. Now, we hear that word rebuke, and we immediately think of, like, the watchdog. You know what I'm saying? Like, the kind of Christian who just sits back, and they love finding people in their sins. They love finding, uh, finding out who's sinning and where they're sinning and how they're sinning so that they can get on to them and, and, and tell them like it is. How do we not become the watchdog? Well, first, that's not what he means by rebuke them. Galatians 6.1 helps us. If someone is caught in sin, those who are spiritual among you, restore, restore this person with gentleness. We're always to have a gentle approach in our rebuke. Rebukes should often be filled with uh, a sense of humility, a shaking voice maybe, fear, trembling, tears, a sense of love for the individual, but a sense of confidence in God. A sense of confidence in the rightfulness of Scripture. Like, this is right, this is good. He doesn't say go looking for sin. He says when you see somebody, find, uh, see somebody in sin, meaning there's a passive element to this. You see somebody blatantly sinning in front of you, or it comes to your attention that there is a sin pattern in somebody's life. Now you can no longer be passive. You must be active. Let me address those who might be rebuked one day. If someone ever rebukes you for sin, thank them. The most loving thing we can do for each other is to to help point out sin when we see it in a brother or sister's life. And when you see somebody in clear, unrepentant sin, approach that individual. Don't be too afraid to speak God's word and God's truth. Now, he doesn't stop there. He continues. Rebuke them, but then what? Verse 4. Or verse 3 still. Uh, If he repents, do what? Forgive him. Now, some of you in your heart 
Nobody's amening out loud. Come on, church, help me. But in your heart, some of you were amening me on this rebuke section, and now I say forgive them, and you say, hold up. If he repents, forgive him. Somebody say amen. Amen. Verse 4, if he sins against you how many times? Seven times. Does that mean if he sins against you eight times this doesn't apply? No, seven is a good number that just means as many times as he sins against you. And he turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. Which means first, the individual does need to take responsibility for their sin. We've got to own it. If you have sinned against somebody in a clear fashion, you know you sinned against them. And just the fact that you haven't talked about it for two to three months, and just the fact that you haven't said anything, and just the fact that you seem to be doing better, doesn't mean that you shouldn't come to them and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, we've got to take responsibility for our actions and stop passing the blame. But on the flip side, friends, when someone says, I'm sorry and I repent, we are to forgive them. Like, Jesus doesn't give a whole lot of qualifying factors here. He just says, you must forgive him. Now, I could try to bring in all of my own qualifications, but I think at that point I would be adding to God's Word. I think we have to take it as it says, and that is, if someone says, I'm sorry, I repent, forgive them. Which means we take people at their word. It means we don't even wait to see if they change. We take this individual at their word, and we forgive them. Now, forgiveness is not necessarily always the same thing as full restoration of a relationship. A man who has committed adultery may have lost his marriage, but she can still forgive him. A a man who has uh, uh, killed another man's son may be locked up for the rest of his life, but the father can still forgive Forgiveness is to release that person of the punishment that you as an individual would, through your attitude, inflict upon them. It is to release them. Earthly consequences apply, but it is to release them. Forgiveness. Where to forgive? Now, uh, if if you're paying attention you probably would agree that this is not easy. This is hard. And I think that that's the response of the disciples. We see their response to Jesus' teaching. And I think their response is motivated by the, the hardness of, of what He's teaching here. Look at verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Meaning, if, if you hear this teaching and you, and you receive it, like, God, I don't want to be the kind of person who leads somebody into sin, and I want to be the kind of person who is quick to forgive. What do I need? 
Meaning, if that's the essence of love, what power do I have to love the weaker brother in this way? Well, here the disciples ask, and they ask for the power, and that is this, faith. Increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What's he saying there? When Montrell first started working for the church years ago, I was trying to teach him how to like strategize, how to, how to put something together. And Montrell would do a couple different things. And I, since he's not here this morning, I can use an illustration about him, right? Just don't tell him. And, uh, and he told me, he said, I don't know how to strategize. Like, I don't know how to think about the end result. I don't know how to put teams together. I don't know how to lead in that way. I'm just, that, I just don't have that in me. And I looked at him and I said, you don't have it in you. He said, yeah, I just don't. And I said, what if today you found out that there were people who were going to kill all of your family members and you had one week to put a militia together to save their lives? Would you be able to do it? And he was like, I see where you're going with that. <laughs> the answer is yes. Meaning you already have within you what it takes to do what you have to do. Now, I think that's what Jesus says to the disciples as they say, I believe this is hard. Increase our faith. We're going to need more faith to live this out. And Jesus, I believe, is saying, you already have all of the faith you need. He goes on to say, if you have just a mustard seed of faith, a mustard seed would have been the smallest known seed at the time. If you have the tiniest bit of faith, he says, you can say to this mulberry tree, a mulberry tree had these deep roots. It was taught at the time that these roots would stay in the ground for 600 years. This is a tree that you don't move. He says, if you have this much faith, itty bitty faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, Go hop in the sea and take a bath, and it would obey you. The most impossible task that we can think of can be accomplished, he's saying, with the smallest amount of faith. Now, why haven't Christians been moving mulberry trees for 2,000 years? It's because that was just a picture. He's not saying if you have a little bit of faith, you can do any trivial task you want. He's not saying if you have a tiny bit of faith, you can be a magician and, and just bring things into existence, or you can actualize something in your life, or you can get a promotion at your job if you have just the, the smallest little bit of faith. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we're not told that you have every physical blessing on earth. These aren't physical realities he's after. These are spiritual realities he's after. Ephesians 1.3 says that you right now have every spiritual blessing, which means that faith is more than just a wish. Have you ever considered, especially if you're not a Christian here, have you ever considered that faith is not just hoping that something will be true? 
Faith is not just a hope that one day I'll wake up in heaven. But faith is a power. It has power. It contains grace in it. And we, we operate with faith, even the most secular people operate with faith every day. I mean, and it's powerful. Like, uh, there are people who go up into skyscrapers every day on faith. They get onto elevators every day, and they ride these elevators having faith in the elevator people. And it's powerful. Like, we actually live our lives with that kind of power. So the question then becomes, what do you have faith in? Well, we as Christians, we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has died, buried, and risen on our behalf through whom we are saved by grace, through whom we have an inheritance. We have a crown one day. One day we will be glorified and we will rule and reign with Him on earth. This is who we are now. It's where we are going. And as we grow then in that faith, we have great power to love each other in this way. Which means, I want to get back to this, this issue, our core problem is sin. With our relationships, the core remedy is to grow in our faith. A church that wants to try to grow in their relationships with each other, but avoids coming together when the Bible's being studied and instructed and taught, is a church that will not grow in their relationships with each other because they're stunting their faith. If we want good relationships, we need good doctrine. If we want good relationships, our, our gatherings together should be marked primarily by the study of God's Word. By growing in our faith and then going from that place and operating with each, other, with each other and with the rest of the world and our neighbors and our co-workers, operating out of the power that is our faith. Amen? Did I lose it? We good? I had something really good I was going to say, but I forgot it. But just know I was going to say something so good. It would have made my message amazing. All right. <clears throat> but let's just move on. He goes on in verse 7 from here. And he turns to a little parable, a, a, an illustration. And he says, imagine that you have a servant who's plowing, working in the field for you, and the servant comes in, he says, would the master of this servant quickly invite this man to the table? And the answer in their culture that they would have known was, no, he would never do that. As a matter of fact, the master would tell the servant, make me some food, and serve me while I eat in your best dress, and then after I'm done eating, you can eat. And then he goes on to say, would the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Verse 10, he says, so you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Meaning the master would not say thank you, 
It was just simply the servant's obligation to serve him in this way. Now, I understand that that illustration strikes at our modern sensitivities. Like, we want to be people of gratitude, and bosses should be saying thank you to their coworkers. But let me give you a modern analogy that I think would get at the point of Jesus' analogy there. If you owed Visa $200, and you come in to $200 and you say, I'm going to use this $200 to pay off my Visa card, and so, so you get online and, and, uh, and you pay that $200, you push enter, submit, there it goes. You just paid off your visa. That's great. Would you believe that you're not going to get a nice little note from Visa, handwritten saying, thank you so much for your $200 contribution to Visa. That was so generous of you. I want you to know that Visa will use your $200 in ways that only promote the good of mankind. We just appreciate you, and we'll give you a record at the end of the year for tax purposes. Or maybe I'll use another analogy. Uh, Let's say you appear in court, traffic court, because you got one of these little speed light camera violations. Nobody knows anything about that, right? And you're going to contest it, and you, you appear in court. Would you believe that the judge won't look at you and say, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. I didn't expect you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Come on in. Take a seat in the front row. How can I help you today? Right? No. Visa doesn't ain't going to send you a thank you note, and the judge is not going to thank you for coming. Why? It's just simply because it's our duty. It's our obligation. Duty simply means a moral or a legal obligation. And that's the point that Jesus is getting at, is is as, as we think of our own faithfulness before God, as we think of our obedience before God, we should not do so. We should not be an obedient individual We should not love each other in this kind of self-sacrificial way only to get a thank you. That's his point. I wonder if we serve for a thank you. When I was a youth pastor, I had uh, somebody come into my office. As a youth pastor, I was over our children's ministry as well, and our children's uh, uh, ministry director resigned and said that the reason she's resigning is because uh, she never felt like there was any gratitude for her service. All right, I should have said thank you. I get it. But is that why we serve? Meaning, if, if I preach every Sunday, and I walk out of here and, you know, shoot the breeze with you and you leave, and, and for the next 30 years, nobody ever says thank you for your sermon, should I stop preaching? Like, do we serve 
only to get a thank you, only to get recognized by human beings, only to be seen as a forgiving individual, only to be seen as a holy, righteous individual? Do we serve to be recognized by others? Is that why we serve? No, Jesus says, when you serve in this way, see yourself as an unworthy servant who have only done what was our duty. That's his point. We forgive. And we don't expect to get some kind of big praise back. We just did what was our duty. We fight against our own lusts and desires and we decide in a moment to not lead somebody towards sin and we should not expect some kind of big praise for that. We should just simply thank God that we are faithful to Him because that was our duty. Are you with me? Duty. It is our duty to love the weaker brother in this way. The essence of love is this issue of sin. It's to deal with sin. It's to not lead people into sin. It's to rebuke sin when we see it. And it is to forgive every time they repent. The power that we have to love in this way is our faith. Why does he say just a little bit is fine? Why does he say just a mustard seed? It doesn't mean that we should not grow in our faith. He's not saying be content with a little bit of faith. But he's saying just a mustard seed, just a tiny bit, is all the faith you need to love in this way. Why? It's because it's not even in the power of our faith. It's in the power of the object of our faith. What we have faith in is so incredible that just the tiniest bit of faith in this Lord Jesus Christ is enough to lead us on the path of obedience before God and with others. Jesus turns from this to a parable. We're going to look at that parable next week, so I'm not going to get into it much right now. But it applies to this. Jesus heals ten lepers. From the text, it seems that one of them is a Samaritan, and we assume the other nine are probably Jews. One of the leopards, lepers comes back to Jesus to say thank you, and it is the Samaritan. And Jesus says, where are the nine? Now it's interesting that Jesus tells us, serve and don't expect a thank you. But when Jesus serves, he seems to expect a thank you. Why is that? Listen, Jesus is eternally God. He has no beginning. He has no end. Forever in the past, Jesus was the Son of God and forever will remain the eternal Son of God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God through whom all things were created. This Jesus, this God, took on flesh. Now, when He took on flesh, according to Philippians 2.7, it says He took on the form of a what? A servant. 
Jesus took on the form of a servant. Was it eternally Jesus' obligation to die for sinners? No. He took on that obligation. He took on the form of a servant. In his context, the servant is one who has a duty to fulfill. Jesus took on the duty of living a life on our behalf. Living for us. Living a righteous life. Living the life that we could not and would not live. He took on the duty of the cross. He served us in His death as the wrath of God was placed onto Jesus for every one of our sins. Which, by the way, tells us something else about forgiveness, and that is real forgiveness is not cheap. Forgiveness is not just looking away from sin, acting as if it never happened. Forgiveness is not saying, eh, not a big deal. Christian forgiveness is rooted in the substitutionary nature of the cross. That is to say, God took the wrath for our sin. He cares about sin. Every sin will be punished, either in the future or on the cross of Calvary. So therefore, we cannot punish what God has already punished on the cross. This is, this is why we must forgive. When a person repents, we must forgive them. Because we are declaring on earth what is declared in heaven, and that is this, that this is, and it, this is a forgiven individual. What king would die for a criminal in the dungeon? The King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. Look, three days later, God rose Jesus from the dead and exalted Him as the King. No longer the lowly servant dying on the cross, but now the King. And He is our King. He's the King that we are obligated to. Our duty is not to self. My king cannot be my desires. My king cannot be my will. My king is not me. My king is in heaven. It is Jesus Christ. And I'm obligated to him. And so if something offends my king, it must offend me. And I must address it with those that I love. If something offends my king, it must offend me. And I don't want to lead those I love to that place. If something has offended me, I have been sinned against. Well, since my obligation is to God, I know that it's not really me who's been sinned against, it's God who's been sinned against. And so I don't have to take it personally. And I can see that Jesus Christ died, yes, even for this sin. It wasn't just for this sin, for those people, for you that He died. It was for me that He died. He is the King of the forgiven. And I'm one of the forgiven. 
So therefore, I must forgive. He's the King of those who have been saved from their sins. And I am saved from my sins. And so therefore, I never want to lead someone into sin. It's just that simple, church. But it's hard. We cannot do it on our own. We need faith. But thanks be to God, He is the giver of your faith. And whatever faith He's given you, you can be assured He's not going to take that away. Trust Him for His grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for this call to not lead others into sin and to forgive sin. I pray, God, that as we see that we are those who are forgiven, that we would recognize it is our duty to love others in this way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.